like I said, we're in our final week in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and to me, I don't know about you, to you it probably feels like forever, but to me it feels like kind of yesterday that I was getting up here at the start of this year, actually it was really, and saying uh, this year we're going to spend most of our time going through the books of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians with a bit of a, a, bit of a Haggai thing in the middle. Um, and here we are at the end of that road. How crazy is that? Um, of course, it, it's not really the end of the road. Um, really, we're at, a, at an early midway point. Um, we've heard again and again and again throughout these, these two books, and particularly this book of 1 Corinthians, the call to be who we are in Christ, to live in our identity as the people of the gospel, to be changed by the truth of the gospel, to be more like him. Now, though the sermon series ends, I know, weeping in tears, keep it for the soup time afterwards, the call remains on our lives. You are in Christ, if you have trusted in him, be who you are in him. Not who the world would call you to be, not who your old self would call you to be, be who in Jesus you have been newly created to be if indeed you have believed in him. Would you pray with me? And we're going we're gonna to dive into this last passage. Jesus, speak to us, your people, today. I ask, Lord, boldly, knowing that I'm not particularly impressive, but knowing that you are well able, I ask that you would challenge us, that you would inspire us, that you would capture our hearts, and lead us to worship you more dearly and deeply, and that in that we would become more like Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a relatively wild ride through 1 Corinthians, hasn't it? Um, you know, this is a letter where Paul has addressed 10 serious situations, issues, facing a struggling church. And I hope uh, that it's been an experience for all of us of of being challenged by the gospel in our struggles. You know, Paul's spoken to issues of pride and issues of lust. He's spoken to issues of unbelief and issues of wrong belief. He's spoken to misconceptions of Jesus and of the gospel, which formed misbehaviours among the people of God. And, and, and all of these things have been addressed. And, and from first to last, it's been a gospel letter. As he opened, Paul told us those words that we remembered just before. The word of the cross is the power of God to those who believe. In fact, the, the word of the cross, he said a little bit later in that chapter, is the power and the wisdom of God for those who believe. What that tells us is that we are never to move on from the gospel. In our, in our walk as the people of God... The gospel never becomes the thing that we've got under wraps and so we're moving on to the next thing. It is always the thing that we are returning to and growing in. How are we saved? The gospel. How are we changed? How are we transformed? How are we sanctified? How are we led to live today as we ought to live? The gospel. On that final day, what are our grounds for avoiding judgment and condemnation in judgment, for leaving sin behind and entering into God's rest? The gospel. 
the good news about Jesus. And as we reach the final chapter, uh, we got that, uh, sorry, the final issue, I should say, in last chapter, we got that beautiful exposition of the heart of the gospel. The things of first importance, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And at every point in this letter, Paul has been bringing gospel truth to bear powerfully on the lives of believers. Showing us that truth that the gospel is the power of God in our lives here and now, not just in some nebulous, distant concept. It applies to my situation in the here and now. It applies to your situation in the here and now, every week and every day and every moment. The gospel is the power of God to overcome our divisions and our pride. The gospel is the power of God for transformation in our sexuality and against our sexual sins. The gospel is the power of, and the wisdom of God which leads us to be a holy people. The gospel is the power of God which transforms our response to the idolatry of this world. And the gospel is the power of God which radically changes our approach to our rights as a people, laying them down in love for others. The gospel is the power and the wisdom of God which leads us to dress not in pomp, and pride like the world, but in line with his creational purposes for us and in a deep humility reflecting our saviour. The gospel is the power of God which leads us to express the gifts of the spirit in Christ and in Christ honouring ways. And finally, as we saw last week, the gospel is the power of God which will one day lead us into the resurrection and joy forever with our Saviour, and which indeed leads us to express the inner reality of resurrection life in our hearts now, today, as people who belong to the day that is to come. But as Paul wraps up, we get to, like, like that wasn't 15 where you would end the letter. I don't know specifically where you would end the letter. It might be where I would end the letter, is all I'm saying. And we get to chapter 16, and we might be tempted to see this last chapter as kind of the closing administrative section of 1 Corinthians. Um, you know, he's talking travel plans. He's talking, um, you know, kind of last instructions for getting some cash together for some things. Um, but, but actually, even as Paul does address these final questions that, that are not of the same weight, they're not the same situations that the other ten have been, what he does is he drives home the power of the gospel in our lives one final time. And he does that by bringing out four ways that everything that has come before applies to those reading. And that goes for us too, right, as we read this. So what we're going to do today we're not going to verse for verse go from the start of this passage. What we're going to do today is we're going to focus ourselves on these four commands that sit at the centre of this passage and see how they apply powerfully to the people of the gospel today 
as much as they did then. And what we're also going to see alongside that, and not just going to be looking at just one verse in this in, because of this, what we'll also see is that this final, in this final chapter, Paul doesn't just command, he shows. He demonstrates how to live out these commands and from where we live them out. So come with me. Our focus for verse for today is 1 Corinthians 16. If you don't have a Bible open, please take a moment to find the page. I, I didn't actually have my bookmark in the page, so if you need an awkward moment to flick around for it, you've got one. But uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14. Paul says this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Four commands. It looks like five. I'm going to explain why I think it's four in just a minute. But Be watchful. First command he gives, be watchful. The word means be in readiness. Be alert. Be keeping a close eye. We live in a world where we are constantly bombarded with messages contrary to the gospel. That's the, that's the soup that we're in these days. In every day, actually. And as the Corinthians have demonstrated to us, we, the people of God, can be prone to be tempted away from the heart of the faith. We can be tempted to stop focusing on our Saviour and on our God. We can stop focusing on his will for my life, on his truth by which I am saved, and we can start focusing on the smaller things of the here and now and making them the ultimate things in our lives. Trying to rule for myself. Trying to make a comfortable life for myself in the here and now, becoming the ultimate thing trying to achieve something of worldly worth becoming the ultimate thing, rather than trying to do something of eternal significance. I don't think it's a mistake that at the start of this chapter, Paul addresses the issue of money. Maybe, maybe we've still got enough people here who are relatively new enough that we, that we have the occasional eye roll of, oh, he's one of those preachers, but uh, hopefully not. No, no one is saved by their use of money. Let me make that super duper clear. Um, but if you want to know what someone really believes, have a look at how they use their money. That, that's a fairly decent barometer. The temptation to worship money, to claim to follow God, but to actually live for money, for financial security, for financial meaning and significance, to see the main thing that I want, that I want for me and that I want to pass on to my children as a financial legacy rather than a faith legacy. That temptation is so strong. And that's why the Bible speaks more about money than almost any other subject, did you know? I think we've mentioned this recently, but like, uh, look, I'm going to be honest, I, I read this somewhere, I didn't go and check, 
There are about 500 verses in the Bible on prayer and faith. Like not, not ones that speak about both of them. Like you get the, pre- the verses on prayer and the verses on faith and you add them together and you've got about 500 verses. There's somewhere in the vicinity of 2,600 on money and how we use our money. More than five times the number. It's not a mistake. And here's the thing. Jesus isn't here to get your wallet. Jesus doesn't want you to be watchful of how you use your money because he is lacking in money. Let's acknowledge how nonsensically crazy that would be, right? Jesus is the king of the universe. Your wallet actually already belongs to him anyway, as does everything. Think of a thing. Call out a thing, anyone. Bananas. Jesus's. Thank you. Giraffes. They belong to Jesus. That's enough, though. Uh, All riches are his. Yes, elephants as well. But Jesus doesn't want you to throw yourself away worshipping something that can never satisfy you. And so many people do throw themselves away on this. He wants you to gain true riches. You know, in, 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 in Luke 16... I love this passage. Jesus says, those who are faithful in a little will be faithful in much. What he means is, what he says is, that we are being entrusted with something of nearly no significance in the here and now with the money and the things that we have. Like, like they're not big things. We shouldn't approach them as be-all and end-alls of our life because they're not. But God has given them to us and the way that we use those things reveals whether we're ready for the things that are to come for the joys of a new creation, for true riches, he calls them. Now, Jesus talked heaps about money. He did. Uh, And he never asked for a cent. I mean, he didn't need to. Riches weren't interesting to him. You know, they they weren't even a thing that he needed to ask for, really. You know, there's this one time that Jesus is is with, I think it's Peter, but you, you can... Tell me I'm wrong afterwards if you want. Um, and and the, the, the disciples are asking, you know, should we pay the temple tax, right? And Jesus uh, gives them a lesson about how to do that, which is really important. We're going to ignore it for now. And then he goes to Peter and he says, go fishing and get a fish. And the fish is going to have a dollar in its mouth and you pay the tax. Like, <laughs> because he can? I don't know. Like, I'm sure there's some deep lesson in the fact that it's a fish, that he pulls a, a coin from a fish. But I think it's in, in one way, he's just showing us, I don't need your money. I got fish with money in their mouths. You know, if he can, if he can tell someone to go catch a fish and the fish is going to have money in it, he can get it from anywhere, can't he? Like, he was just showing off in some way. Not, he wasn't. But, but, like, he could do it anyway. He could have gone, oh, you want the tax? Look, under this rock, dollar. You want the tax? Look, behind your ear, dollar. And it's not actually a trick. He pulled it out of nowhere. Sorry, I got. I should never walk off the script. Um, in this chapter, Paul gives us some really practical instructions, though, to help us to handle the barometer of money. First, we've got to say, Paul's specifically addressing a collection here for a specific purpose. He's, he's talking to them about the collection for the famine that's happening in the church in Judea, uh, and, and we might read that and we might go, well, that's not a thing anymore. There is no famine in Judea. I, 
correct me if I'm wrong. But um, so, so this doesn't apply to me. But here's the thing. There are always needs. We might not be giving to Jerusalem for a famine, but there are always needs because God doesn't bless us with money so that we can build our own kingdoms. He sees to it that there are needs. Let me highlight a few of them now. One area, if you're a Christian, where you should absolutely be generous is in regularly... uh, giving to the ministry of the church that you're a part of. We are a church together, and we are financially together in that way. What we do here runs on the generosity that God inspires in his people. Someone's going to soundbite me there at some point and be like, hey, look at this guy, he's just a prosperity teacher. You can, you can, you can ignore him. Here's the thing. I've believed this and I've practiced this since well before I was even vaguely thinking I might be a pastor someday. This is just what it looks like to be a Christian who follows Jesus and stewards their money well. But that's not all that it looks like. The local church is the body which you're a part of, which is given to equip and to instruct you in following Jesus and serving in ministry in the here and now. And so that's something you're called to support, but it doesn't end there. We might not have a Jerusalem famine, but we can support persecuted brothers and sisters through organisations like Open Doors or um, Barnabas. Got the name right? We can support the poor and the needy through sponsorship with, with groups like Compassion. Now, I hate pastors who get up and talk about all the good ways they've done it, um, but, but I, I just don't know how else to do it. Um, like, <laughs> yes, you're right to laugh. Um, I don't know, there, there would be a temptation, I think, a lot of the time to hear that and to go, yeah, but, you know, you get, you get paid money, John, and, and um, you're, you're a wealthy pastor who gets three days a week or something, so... You, You've got all the money to give to those things. What, what about me? But, like, you know, when did we sign up for, to support Batoya? Tell me, Abby. Bible college? Okay. So, so think. We, in Bible college, we were bums, would be the best way to express it, um, in our financial capacity. Um, it's, it's, it's not... The reason I bring it up is it's so often a question not of what finances we have, but what financial priorities we have that line up whether we are supporting the poor and supporting the persecuted and supporting the church. You know? Like, it's kind of that thing where we always have a full life. It's automatic. We fill up our lives with things. And so, so like, with busyness, the question is not, are you busy? The question is, what are you busy with and is, are they the right things? With money, the question is not, are you using all your money? Is there leftovers? Of course, there's not leftovers. We automatically fill out what we have. The question is, are you using it well? Are you using it a way of eternal significance? Are you using it on things that God would call you to use it on? How's the barometer looking for your life? And like, look, it doesn't end, let me emphasise this, it doesn't end with supporting an organisation. We're, we're called to... Like, those, those are wonderful things. Compassion's great. Open Doors is great. Uh, the church is great, but, but uh, 
I think sometimes we just get into the mindset of I've absolved myself of my responsibilities by giving to a few things, right? Um, and, 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 and so my Christian walk is done for the week because I set up a bank transfer. Good thing to set up, but it doesn't end there. We're called to identify needs in our community locally and to seek to fill them to use our money really in practical ways locally on the things that we have, to, to, to reach the neighbours that God has actually put around us, to care for the poor, to care for the downtrodden, to care for the alienated in Jesus' name, to use the money that you spend on food, to buy enough food that you can invite someone in to eat food in your house. I love the word food, by the way. There are always needs which God blesses us with as an opportunity to be faithful in the little that he has given us. To be watchful in the way that we are using what he's given us. And, and Paul gives us some practical principles for managing the barometer, barometer of our faith. Note these are principles. These aren't like, if you don't do this, you're not a Christian sort of things. He tells them to give regularly. Well, what he says is to store some up every week. And that's why I say it's a principle. But, but here's, here's, the, here's the thing you should take from that. Give regularly. Be generous regularly. Don't wait till tax time to be generous, although you can do it then too. He instructs them, uh, in this case, to, yeah, like I said, to put away money once a week. You know, I, I believe in this. Um, I haven't always been good at this, I must note. Uh, being married has been wonderful for my organisational skills as a human being. But, but if we give just when the thought grabs us, sometimes we think of that as being more spiritual, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm doing spirit-led giving, and so I just give when, when the thought, when the, when, when the spirit grabs me to do so. Um, but, but, but when we're realistic, that's not actually how we approach the rest of our lives, right? If, if something, um, if, if we're going to do it that way, I'm okay with you doing it that way, but do that with your money in every case, you know? You know what? I'm only going to buy food when the Spirit leads me to do so. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm only... Look, I, I know there's water bills. And when I feel led, I will use God's money for that. You know? and, and, and you wait for them to come to your door. Um, <laughs> if something is important in the rest of our lives, we do what we need to do to make sure that it happens. That's spiritual living. is making a priority of the Spirit of God. Yeah, if I have a dentist appointment, I put a reminder in my phone, right? Or on my calendar. Actually, my calendar's on my phone. And I ask Crystal to remind me as well because I'm still bad at remembering. There is a real maturity to being intentional in using our money for the kingdom and for kingdom purposes, making sure we are regular in generosity. Second principle he gives us about this is he says, he tells them to give what they are able. He says, each one should give as he may prosper. Now, what that means is that on the one hand, there is no tithe principle, for, no tithe rule for the church. Put that out there. There's no minimum amount that you have to give to be a good Christian. Yeah, we know that, right? Because Jesus looks at the, the people giving at the temple and he says that the widow who puts in the two copper coins gave more than the rest of them because she gave sacrificially of what she had. But on the other hand, it means that God has equipped each person with money. 
so that they can be generous with it and use it well for his glory. So, first, be watchful. Second, Paul says, stand firm in the faith. What faith? Well, at its core, the things of first importance that we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, right? That Jesus Christ died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. That Jesus Christ was buried, that Jesus Christ rose again in accordance with the scriptures. First and foremost, this means standing firm in the gospel. And although, as the whole letter has shown, the principles of the gospel apply to every part of life, we can stand firm in every area of our lives. Paul gives us a clear example in this chapter of probably probably both the clearest and the most challenging implication of standing firm in the gospel uh, that there is in any age. Standing firm in the gospel faith means standing firm in holding out the gospel faith to others, no matter the cost. Paul Paul examples this when when he talks about his time in Ephesus. Uh, What does he say there? He says in in verses 5 to 9, he says, I will visit you after passing... The travel plans, right? The travel plans that we're tempted to skip over, actually very significant. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Notice that Paul prioritizes his life and his finances and his everything around the gospel, by the way. Just jumping back to the last one. For I do not want you... Uh, want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And here it is. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So he gives these travel plans, right? That's what they are. And, and makes it clear he wants to see them. He wants to be with them. But at the end of the travel plans, he, he um, says he's going to stay here for a while in Ephesus, where he is. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Now, pause there, finger on the page. Paul stands firm in the faith in Jesus by faithfully sharing the good news. And so must we. Let me give you a few suggestions of how this looks. We're to stand firm in the faith by being active in hospitality. Inviting in those who don't know Jesus into our lives and around our tables. Getting to know them, caring for them, showing them the love of Christ and speaking to them of the love of Christ. We're to be active in entering the spaces where people who don't know Jesus gather. The church for so long has been used to the idea that we put something on and people come to us. Turns out, in a a culture that doesn't know Jesus, not the best mission strategy. Uh, Not the most complete mission strategy is perhaps a better way of putting it. The mission strategy of the church must involve we go where they are. They already gather. People who don't know Jesus already gather. Go. Be a part of a sporting association. Getting to know, get to know people at your kids' games, 
as you're able. Befriend the people at the senior citizens. Befriend the people at the CWA or, or whatever, you know, not, not if you're a bloke, obviously. Stepping outside of our comfort zone because to be faithful to be faithful to the faith that we stand firm in calls us not just to stand still, but to go. Now, I think sometimes, if we're honest, we're just scared about how people might respond when we're faithful to that call. We're scared to get involved in people's lives. We're scared to speak gospel truth into people's lives because we're scared of the response. Don't hear me wrong here. Don't be a jerk about it. That's a, that's a wonderful way to have people oppose you, not because of the gospel, but just because you're a nasty person at the time. And that's, that's been done a bit by Christians, which is why, why I bring it up. But if I get to know people and offer them Christ, we're worried that even if I do that well, I, th- I think, you know, some people might oppose me on that or might get upset at me about that. Um, well, don't miss what Paul says here, right? He says, why is he going to stay in Ephesus? For a wide door for effective workers open to me, and there are many adversaries. I read, as I was preparing, and as, as I've looked at this passage over time, I've read so many people who try to explain that what Paul is saying there is probably just that, you know, it... it He says this, but what he means is a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. But there are many adversaries, you know, uh, and regardless of the fact that there are many adversaries. Um, And and I agree, to my mind, that would make more sense. But here's the thing, it's not what he says. (laughs) He says he's going to stay... Because there's a wide door open for gospel work that can happen there and because there are many adversaries to that work. Paul's perspective is radically different to ours, let's agree. Um, We should let Paul's perspective inform ours. He takes opposition as a sign that something worthwhile is happening here. So he ought to keep at it. You know... For Paul to leave town, people need to be actively stoning him to death. You know, it has to be a situation dangerous enough that they have to lower him over a wall on a basket or something. It's okay to be afraid. But don't be ruled by fear. Acknowledge that the very worst that can happen... Do this right now to yourself. Acknowledge that the very worst that can happen to me is nothing compared to what I have gained and cannot lose in Christ. And stand firm in the faith as you share your faith. It's amazing what God does with genuine, awkward, weird, even moderately incompetent faithful. He doesn't need you to be fancy. He doesn't need me to be impressive. He doesn't really need you at all. Sorry. He invites you to step into his purposes for you. Stand firm in the faith. So first, right, be watchful. Second, stand firm in the faith. Third, 
uh, we get this little couplet, and these two go together. He says, um, act like men, be strong. And we might go, yeah, chainsaws and beards, right? Motorbikes. Um, that's actually not what he means. Um, ladies, apologies, not off the hook here. Um, really, the word there, literally, they've translated it literally in the ESV, which is act like men. What it means is the weight that it carries is be courageous. Be courageous, be strong. If we are to do as Paul has called us to do throughout this letter, if we are to live out the implications of the gospel in radically countercultural ways, in our sexuality, in our laying down of our rights, in our putting aside of our pride, in our embracing humility no matter what, how much it hurts us, in our taking the gospel to others, in our using the gifts humbly as a part of a body, especially if we are to be persistent and clear in sacrificing ourselves whilst holding out the gospel, we are going to need courage and strength. But don't miss it. The courage and the strength of a Christian never come from ourselves. It comes from Christ and from knowing him. And from knowing what is true about him and therefore what is true about me in him. Some of Paul's last words in these le this letter, in this chapter, verse 22, really demonstrate this. He's concerned. He, he says that awkward thing, right, about, about those in Corinth who do not love Jesus. He says, let them be accursed. Um, and it you know, shouldn't be surprising. A person who has no love for Jesus is not in Jesus and is therefore under the curse of sin. He's stating facts there, right? He says, he says that, but then... As he is concerned and worried about this, that about these people who do not love Jesus, and this clearly distresses him in the way that he says it, right? Where does he instantly turn for courage in the face of that? Where does he instantly turn for strength in the face of this worry? He says, oh Lord, come. His hope is set on Jesus and he longs with certainty for the day of Jesus' return, when Jesus will come back. It's like at the end of Revelation, where John is living in slavery on Patmos, right? And the church is living in a world that pressures conformity to idolatry and false worship, where there is increasing uh, persecution for those who refuse to conform, and where John has seen that it's going to get worse. And where does he look in the very end for courage, where does he find it? The spirit and the bride, that's the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. There you go. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We have strength and we have courage when we place our here and now in the light of the truth about Jesus. This is a choice to be made daily. Do we live our lives in response to the seemingly compelling powers of this world? Do we choose 
whether to speak or not, whether to be faithful or not, whether to love relentlessly or not, on the basis of how people here and now might respond to that, or on how I'm treated in the here and now, or how nice that person has been to me, or how I'm perceived by people, or how powerful the people I'm speaking to seem to be, or how popular they may seem to be compared to little old me, or do I react in response to a greater reality? Do I know that Jesus is coming back for me and nothing will stop him? And so I can have courage and strength to go on following him in the here and now. Have courage, have strength because of Jesus, because of the gospel. So first, be watchful. Second, stand firm in the faith. Third, have courage, have strength. And finally, Paul gives this command that in many ways is a summary of the application of this entire letter. Let all that you do be done in love. Should I take that last line back? A summary of the entire message of this letter. Let all that you do be done in love. What that means is at least three things, which when we grasp them, they lead us to live beautiful, different lives. Let all that you do be done in the love of God for you. Our motivation, our foundation for living is not first, not first the love that I give, but the greater love that I've received. Paul himself says it here over in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life we now live is lived well as we focus on this reality. Christ loved me as he gave himself for me. Indeed, he loves me still. No love I could ever be called to give could match the love that I have received in Jesus. When he suffered for me, when he died for me, when he took the punishment and the weight of my sin for me and rose victorious over it to give me life. Second, obviously, based on that first one, let all that you do be done in love for God. Our relationship with him stabilizes us and secures us. We were made to live in a loving relationship with our creator. And so our lives are where they're meant to be when we, dazzled by the reality of his great love for us, respond in heartfelt love for him. I think sometimes we forget this and we act like God just wants our respect. Like, wants us to revere him and fear him. We should revere him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He's God, we would be mad not to. But wonder of wonders, God made us not just to revere him, but to love him and be loved by him. When asked 
what the greatest commandment in the entire Old Testament law is, Jesus quoted the heart of the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I got those in the wrong order. And then he shows us how worthy of love our creator is by giving himself for us. As soon as our love for Jesus grows cold, we have stepped apart. We've departed from where he wants us to be. It's possible you've been in churches your whole life and never really got this. Let's be honest. It's possible that you've only ever taken it to be that what God wants from you is a distant reverence and a fear. You haven't realised he created you to love him and to be loved by him. Let me say it gently. This is the truth of salvation. God loves you. He died in love for you. Jesus died in love for you to save you even though you would run, even though you are dist- were distant from him. You are called to live now in love for him because he loves you so. Faith isn't a checklist. Faith is trusting his love and so loving him. Let, let that be an invitation to anyone who has lived without knowing the love of God. Both the love of God in the sense of the love that God gives us, which is so great, and the love for God that just flows out of his great love for us. Trust him today. Know that he loves you today. Know that Christ died for you today and took your sin and be saved and love him. There is such joy in the love of God. Finally, let all that you do be done in love for one another. Love for Christ must flow over into love for one another and for others. We see this so clearly in the life of Paul, right? Paul spends this entire letter, about 6,500 words, right, in, in what must have been anguish because He planted this church, right? He was the one who came. He started the church in Corinth by the Spirit's power. Yes, Jesus was at work in it. Yes, Jesus planted a church through Paul. And now he's writing to them, not because they've got one little thing that's popped up that he needs to deal with, but because there are 10 glaring issues that that just show it's falling apart, that they are jumping off the rails as fast as they can. Everywhere he looked, they were embracing the surrounding culture and abandoning Christ. Incest, pride, boasting, infidelity, justifying idol worship, brazenly harming one another's conscience, abusing the Lord's table, abusing the spiritual gifts, abusing everything that God's given them, really, even denying the resurrection. One would not be surprised if the final words of Paul in the letter of 1 Corinthians were something along the lines of the frustrated parent, right? Who who gets to the end and just goes, you know what? I just don't know what to do with you people. I'll deal with it when I get down there. Just stay still until I'm there. He doesn't. Indeed, 
His last words are these. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Or if you translate the word amen, truly. Let us never think that there is any offence that anyone can give us which outweighs the love that we have received in the gospel. And therefore, which outweighs our calling to love brothers, sisters, neighbours, strangers, enemies. But stop looking at me for a second. Look at each other for a second. Yes, Matt, you may awkwardly stare at your wife. You're called to love them with the love of Christ. Sacrificially. Giving them your time. Giving these people your heart. Giving them your table. We're called to mourn with one another when we're mourning. And to rejoice with one another when we're rejoicing. The love of the church is the love of a family bound together with something greater than genetics. The love of Christ. The blood of Christ. What's more, as you walk down the street today, or wherever you go, and this week, look at the people around you. The people who don't know Christ. The people who are walking along in their lives, oblivious to him, denying him. You're called by the love of Christ to love them. Even if they're enemies or indifferent or just plain old difficult. Christ loved you when you were still his enemy and laid himself down for you, for me. So church, be watchful of your lives in the gospel. Stand firm in the faith of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Be courageous and strong, knowing that he's coming back for you. And let all that we do be done in love. Would you pray with me? Jesus, your love for us is so great. Lord, I'm fearful as we reach the end of this chap chapter, as we reach the end of this book, that we'll chalk it down as another preaching series that was fun, that we'll move on, and that we won't be changed. Lord, by your Spirit's power, guard us from it. Make us watchful, ready, alert, looking at our lives and not falling back but stepping into who you've made us to be. Let our eyes be on Christ and transform us as we see. Lead us not to step away from this series and fall back into old ways, but let us stand firm in the faith. I pray for every believer in Christ here and hearing this, that you would put someone in our hearts this week who needs to know you, and that you would give us a wide door, an effective door for gospel work, even if they're our adversaries. Lord, 
Our hearts are weak and we tend to be afraid. By your truth, make us courageous and strong. Let our faithfulness be driven in the strength of who you are. Lord, let us know your love. We love you, Lord. And let us live out that love towards all who are around us. We pray it all in the beautiful name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. He went to the cross for us. And by this we know the power of God. Amen.